0: Uh, I remember there was one, I was in there, and um, the poor guy died. I had to help dress him in in, in the back room. He was about 20 stone. They've got this maneuver where you can put their arms up and dress them, and the guy like that. And um, there was one point where he lifted his arms up. One of his arms just fell down heavily and punched me in the nuts. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) I've gone from being a tech entrepreneur to being hit in the nuts by a corpse. I need a change of industry. That's Ian
1: Strang, the founder of Beyond, a startup which took on the giants in the death industry, won some battles in style, but lost the war. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we're here to learn from founders in the thick of it. Ian recently sent me an email explaining some of the stuff that had happened at Beyond, and it was so good we had to do an episode on it. This is a classic startup story, which shows what a small group of people with limited resources, but a lot of ingenuity, can do. Annoyingly, Ian's audio is ropey in the first third, but it does get better. And I hope you'll stay with it, because, well, trust me, this is a great one. I've specifically asked him to do me a favor and share this story with you. Now, one thing's really clear about Ian, which is he's tough. He wouldn't have been able to do the things you'll hear about if he wasn't. And he had to be tough to cope. With his childhood,
0: growing up, growing up was interesting because uh, I, I had a disabled mother. She had um, she had multiple sclerosis, and um, that uh, you know you can go two ways. with Multiple sclerosis, so, well, I think, with any sort of a uh, disability, you can either become a um, a better person or a, or a better person. You can deal with it in a very positive way or in a particularly negative way. And she was certainly um, fell into the latter category. So I guess she she wanted in the, in the time she felt she had available to to make us children as successful in her mind i guess as as could be so she was very um you know i got i got a scholarship aged um probably six which was too early and then had to do it again the next year because i was too young got another one she was you know forced us through that kind of thing we could you know the well i think she had this early learning sort of dome and system you know i could read and stuff by two but she was um uh let's say she was very brutal with our practices in order to achieve that she wasn't she wasn't the kindest person so um so childhood was a um it was a lot of work, a lot of um, pushing to achieve academic goals and not a lot of particular kindness, I think. But also, you know, the, the, you learn qualities from that that help you, uh, help you along in life. So, for example, you know, I think for basically most of, most of the last 10 years of her life, they gave her six months to live every time, you know, so it was always in and out of hospital. And I think that kind of Uncertainty and you know just living through it and finding you know ways to to manage to go through that and and uh, with humour etc is is very useful in the life of a startup because there's always uncertainty and chaos so it sort of gives you the gives you the ability to to find your negotiate your way through that navigate your way through that
1: yeah and so you know growing up with a, a parent who I guess had a disability for want of a better word I also you know my, I grew up my father was blind so I understand very different but I understand what it's actually like. Interestingly, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but there's a real bond, in my experience, a real bond that develops when um, the natural order of things of um, caretaker is reciprocal to an extent. And I never felt like I was looking after my dad and he wasn't looking after me or anything like that, but it's way more a two-way street because obviously I had my mum and I could see what it's like to just receive care. So you you understand the nature, um, if you've got the side of both parents, to be able to see... Um, how that flows differently, and I wonder, you know, how was like your your relationship then with like your father on the other side then? So how did this stuff like sort of ebb and flow in your understanding of the
0: relationship? I guess my father was. Um, I guess he brought the humour to the situation because it was his job to to get us all get us all through it. I suppose and anchor anchor the family, which he was which he was good at. Um, so yeah, I had a good relationship with him. He was also, but I suppose he also then uh, he, he was never the most. Um, got not sound terrible, just critique my family. I mean, it was never perhaps cause the the the, the, uh, the most one able to talk about his emotions and things. And I suppose so. He um, he uh, sensibly, I suppose he because he, he had a hard time dealing with uh, dealing with my mother and all of that. He, he he remarried quite quite soon after she died and went to live in went to live in the US. So I you know I have, a, I, have a, I have a good relationship with him now better since we have grandkids as as I think you tend to find with your parents they felt you know they're closer when grandparents come along but i've got a solid relationship with him i'd say but um yeah he was never the most uh, sharing caring sort of individual
1: okay how do you think some of these
0: uh relationships shaped you in your early life I was, I was quite geeky i think in my early life i mean i was sort of brought up with one singular goal which was academic achievement i guess in you know in my, I used to carry a briefcase around at age eight or, <laughs> or age nine. So I, I suppose it took me a while um, to develop a, a wider personality outside of that. So I guess I, you know, it was slightly harder at school at the start. Um, I never really developed my own wider ranging personality. I suppose till after school when I um I left and um went to live in Tenerife for a year, which was um yeah, which was a, a very revolutionary experience and very enjoyable. The last thing, perhaps, I suppose, would be one that I've always tended to be able to think very quickly because that was what I was honed to do from a, from a young age, I suppose. But and always being quite independent and resilient. But but yeah, childhood wasn't. I don't look back on it with sort of a halcyon days. I, I you know the periods after were much more enjoyable. And um, what about school? Grade A's, star pupil, scholarship age eight, Another scholarship age twelve, but then um, when I got to about fourteen, fifteen, I could exercise some independence from family sort of away boarding and then you know the uh, alcohol comes in friends come in girls come in yeah sort of then started to trail off then to the state that i think i only got um i only like scraped BBDA a level or something and then um uh then it might then went off to tenerife came back did a degree and um yeah barely scraped through that i think with a pass i think i was you know rebelling at that stage and thinking i'd had enough of education as you tend to get with them uh, you know you, you see all these kids who are brutally tutored at a young age and they do tend to rebel after that I later went back and did an MBA and you know, sorted that out, but yeah, education went down the pan for a while.
1: Okay, so it's interesting, right? So education went down the pan, you ended up going back to do an MBA. Sort of in some weird way feels like an unusual choice.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's always been a case I've never really had a structured career plan and I didn't really know what to do. I've, I've, I've never, never had a plan for what jobs I was going to do. At that stage, I was working for a company called Arts Alliance Media, who um, converted cinemas to digital they sat between the Hollywood studios uh, and the cinemas. And that was, an, that was an exciting job, interesting job setting up their, their national network. But uh, and they'd, hired, they'd hired me because I'd done five years setting up a cash machine network, uh, the cash machines that charge you £1.50. So I, I just found myself into, the, into these roles and taken on responsibility, which was operations, logistics, warehousing, engineers, vehicles all around the country, that kind of thing. I, I don't know how I found myself doing that, but I did. And then once I did all of that, I sort of reached the top of that, as you see, a director of operations, and then realized there was all this other stuff to learn outside of it, marketing, finance, all these other skills. And uh, my granddad had just died and left me some money. Um, and I think my dad suggested that this MBA thing, and I thought, well, yeah, why not, I'll well, quite go and learn these other kind of things, so I um, applied to LBS, got in and went, went off to do that. And if I, I had a short-lived startup after that called Buzzboard. One of the university lecturers actually, um, who also was an investor, backed me to do that, which was. Advertising in news agents windows. So where you'd have the old um poster cards that you put up for local services, instead we put a digital screen in the window. And at that stage, there was there wasn't the technology to do all this, so we had to work it out from China, you know, build a hardware solution that could deal with sunlight through the window, we had to stick a GPS router to it and stuff and get the software And And people could go on and create their adverts, whether it was static or, or a little bit of movement, and upload them to the local network. So I was around. Uh, visiting news agents trying to convince them that this would bring in more money than a tight rack in their window, um, go around doing that around south Southwest London. And that was, that was quite fun. When we put out 20, 20 of those, I think we, we only ended up selling that for about the same value that we'd, we'd put into it or less. Because generally, apart from it being 2009, which is a terrible time for advertising, it was just a bad idea. Um, you know, Gum, Gumtree is a much better place uh, to do things like that online than, than those postcard ads. The reason people put them up is because they're not technology savvy. Um, there's no overlap between the markets so it was a bit of a flawed concept in the end um, the only money to be made from that is really from larger businesses advertising not from individuals but it was fun uh, it was fun and it was my first experience of raising capital seed capital so um yeah I had some good times doing that.
1: What happened to that startup then did you like classic just run out of money the usual way they they end or something more interesting?
0: No it wasn't it wasn't that interesting we had a we talked with who was it um Alan Sugar's son.
1: Uh, yeah, AM screens. I was going to ask you about that. I happened to, in an adjacent life many years ago, been in a not too dissimilar a field. So I actually know about uh, the AMScreens and and Alan Sugar's son.
0: Simon Sugar, right? Yes, rock and roll digital signage. One of the many exciting industries i worked in. Um, it was, no, I did meet with him. He was, um, uh, but no, it, nothing, ever, nothing ever came came of that. And um, it just, died, really. Um, the, the investors decided so they didn't want to put any money in. Or oh, I, I think we'd re- one of them had committed to put money in and then he didn't. Very angry man, I remember. Had a sort of a moat and something called a ha-ha or something at his house, some huge estate. Um, but he decided he wasn't going to put the money in because he didn't like the numbers. Um, so, we really had no choice but to shut it down because we were expecting that money. Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't sue him. And the company couldn't sue him. We had no money. He'd agreed to put it in as part of a charged round. But we'd hit the targets for that round, but um, he decided not to. Um, so, no one else was going to. So, we ended up flogging off the, flogging, flogging it off to someone I cannot remember who, some local digital signage network. But no, no, for a while it looked like it was going to get more interesting when we met, when we met uh, Simon Sugar. But no, it never did. It just, was, um, it just wasn't a good idea. And what do you do next? I did some consulting for a year um, to get some money, some really tedious consulting in the rail industry, doing those bids. There was a point at which they were paying loads of money for people just to work on these bids. Um, all the time, um, did that for a year and a half, I think, or something like that. And then it, the government just shut the bit down. And then I went to, I did a year at somewhere called Global Career Company, um, which was, uh, again, running it for someone, recruitment from the UK back to Africa to companies there. Um, I was just sort of, it was, a, it was a tough economy. So, I was just, I guess, taking roles. Um, and then from there, uh, someone there went to work at a company which is now called Holland, well, a series of three companies, um, which, uh, and it sounded really interesting, and they recommended me across. And um, it was called The Physical Network at that point, And I went along, and it was cool. It was in um, this sort of cool, funky, converted building. Uh, lots of buzz, lots of young people. And there was a series of three companies there, all sort of run overall by a guy called Callum, um, Callum negus Fancy. And one of these was called The Physical Network, which was uh, a load of... Um, young kids calling up loads of sort of other uni kids around the country in a sort of Avon style. Um, if you sell three to sell eight festival tickets to your mates, you get a ticket free. If you sell, uh, you know, a certain amount of tickets, you get a speedboat to festival, etc. It So there was loads of buzz, it was exciting, and I thought, well, this is nice. And I just actually quit my other job. I had a child on the way, I didn't like the guy I was working with at a global career company, which pleased pleased my partner a lot when I turned up and she was, about you know, two months about to give birth and I just quit a very well-paid job because I didn't like it. She was like, well, I don't like being pregnant either, so you need to sort something out. But this company was exciting, so I, you know, I joined that. And um, uh, my role there was managing director. Um, Callum's younger brother, Liam, was there. I mean, he was only 19 or something. And so my job, I guess, was like those guys they brought into Google to be a sort of more responsible person, look after it, grow it, bring some experience to it, uh, which we did. Um, and that was, I was there for I think four or five years. We turned it, we sort of built all the technology for that, turned it into an events marketing solution, and grew it across the UK to the States, across parts of Europe. Um, and it was uh, doing really well and headed uh, for a Series A. But we were coming towards the Series A. And that, uh, and again, I had a kid, I think I had another one on the way, and it was a very fun company. and. That level of fun that I was having there did not fit with the responsibilities of being a parent to two young kids. I was burning the candle at, I guess, all four ends. You know, I, did, I was working constantly. I was doing a lot of sport. I was doing a lot of going out because it was music festivals. I mean, life was just going to music festivals. And I had two young kids um, and something had to give there. So I thought this is a good time to, to, you know, to do something else. And I was also getting frustrated at seeing startup ideas that had to be done by other people. I remember back at, um, back at business school, I'd come up with a list of ideas that I thought, these, these are decent business ideas, we could do these. Um, one was called Scurry. Uh, I had the domain scurry.it, which was a food delivery service, which everyone at university told me was a terrible idea. And now, obviously, I think it was a great idea. Um, but that, I kept seeing that got done. And I thought, well, okay. If it
1: makes you feel better. Uh, you probably never would have been able to execute it. So don't worry.
0: <laughs> so very true actually executing is the, the, the thing I'm good at with businesses oh well then I um, take
1: it all back you're completely uh, fucked <laughs> up <again. laughs>
0: it's, yeah exactly it's choosing, it's choosing the wrong choosing the wrong yeah you should, always,
1: you should always you should always you should sit with regret and resentment instead then forget what I said
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll store it up um, and then I've had this weird funeral idea only because I just read this report of the funeral industry and um, I thought that is a broker market you know there's this there's such extremes in pricing you've got these Big funeral chains, which sort, of sort of hide, you know, no one knows the big funeral chains because they hide behind these old family names and they're charging you know six thousand pounds for a funeral, whereas someone else charges two thousand. But there's no transparency in this market. 88% independent. Um and I thought, wow, this market's totally broken. And I just thought, well, let's, you know, let's have a go, let's have a look at this market. I didn't have any other interest or excitement in the death market. I just thought to be honest, I thought we could do a quick tech play here. Marketplaces—they're a big thing. Market networks. I thought, well, this is a perfect market. It's got all the characteristics where technology should enable it. No one else wants to do it because it's death. And as soon as you mention it to anyone, they're like, "Oh God, you're doing death. You're the death guy." So I was like, well, actually, you know, I prefer uncompeted markets. I remember doing this business case at business school. It was something about a boot polish company, and this guy made so many. So many much money out of combining these old boot companies because no one wants to work in these boring industries, you know. And I'd worked in cash machines, etc. So I sort of knew that boring industries there was there's money to be made because people just they want to do the sexy stuff, you know. And I don't want to be competing against people in Facebook who are, you know, staying up all night on Red Bull working all kinds of hours. I'd rather have industries where no one's interested in them. So yeah, yeah. So I started so I, I was still working at um, Pollen, but I did a couple of tests. So I sort of set up a website which was. um you know, compare funeral directors with just a landing page and a button uh, and did some PPC ads to it. And people people clicked on them and came through. And I thought, actually, we could get a decent a decent conversion rate out of this. Uh, you know, I, was, I was on really good terms with uh, with the guys at Poland. Um, and I said, look, I, I want to do something else. Uh, you know, and they were up for it. I've been there five years. They were doing the Series A. But um, so we sort of managed it together to, that we raised investment. We took some outside seed funding. They let me set it up in the same building and run the two companies at the same time um, and made a sort of token investment of office space, uh, office space and rental, etc. Um, they paid my salary for six months while we did it. And we had a smooth transition towards Series A. So, so it worked out quite well. Series A, I, you know, I moved over. They continued on their trajectory, which is a great trajectory. They've just raised a Series C of $140 million.
1: Okay, so you've, you've, you've gone and uh, basically started to validate this idea in the death industry. So we have the background to, you know, how you kind of get started on Beyond, but take, take us through what the actual proposition is, was, what the vision was, and sort of like how
0: you really got started. How do you made that like first jump into this space? So um, it was, I saw the broker market, as I've talked about before. It's two two billion market, the death industry, just in the UK. Huge price variations, uh, it's complicated, no consumer power, um, as a disaggregated market, no technology. Um, so we thought it, it just needs price comparison. And so we, we had to build one side of the marketplace, as you do with the marketplace. So we decided to, to build the funeral director proposition. And I'd met this guy called James at a, at a music festival actually. So, so I actually I hadn't learned anything from my previous experience of, of not working with friends. But James, James was great. He was working in finance uh, at the time, um, doing analyst reports. I just thought to myself, he seems like an entrepreneurial guy, he should be doing this kind of thing. So um, I pitched it to him and to my current, uh, ma- to my marketing director at Holland. I said, you know, do you fancy doing this? Uh, he said, yeah, so I brought James across and we spent the next six months, what, I suppose at the start, signing up funeral directors. So um, we had to go um, and uh, sort of tour the country to funeral related events, uh, which is rock and roll, and um, you know, and sell this to funeral directors. And there's some cracking events to go to. You know, I think the first one, we went to the Ideal Death Show. You wouldn't believe there's such a thing, but it is. And they have the, the funeral, funeral Oscars there, where they give out awards. You know, they had the guy from Dad's Army comparing, um, and they had Gravedigger of the Year, all the biggies. We went there and, um, you know, mingled with funeral directors and, uh, and sold them this this concept of, you know, we sold it on the Independence um, Because, you know, I guess with anything, we decided there had to be... Um, it's best to set up with an enemy, something that you, know, you could say. So we said, look, independence, you guys are better, you give a better level of service, you charge less money, these evil chains are ripping off the consumers, which they were, by the way. And, and so we said, look, you join with us, we'll bring you all online to this platform, make it transparent uh, you know, and create a bit of a noise. So we, we went along and we had stalls at these events and we like did things like we printed out this, these, these cards which had like a funeral director's door on it, um, on one side of it, and on the back we had quotes from funeral directors' websites, whether they're chains or independence, And then you had to guess who's behind the door um, because these, the chains have such misleading things. They're called, um, you know, they go, oh, we're Driscoll and Sons or whatever it is. We've been in business since 1842 and it's not. It's a, it's a chain um, that's just bought this old funeral director and, uh, you know, and, and kept the history of it. You know, we'd have bottles of wine for them to guess and all the funeral directors would come and guess. Um, and so we, we were out in the country signing these up because we thought, you know, you know we needed to prove one side of the marketplace. And we, got, we signed up about I think 9% of the funeral directors but you know we needed more more money at that stage we only had a small seed round so we had to raise uh, raise a bit more money and then I went to do you remember the Europas I don't know know if they still do them Mike Butcher used to organise it so I went to I went to the Europas um, and uh, I was pretty hungover actually I got there um, I'm struggling a bit. And there was this pot you can put your card in, your business card in. So I put my business card in it. I got to the stage and was watching it. And, um, and then they, they had this section where they've got dragons on stage who are you know venture capitalists. They had um, a few of them on there. And um, if they pick your business card out of the hat, you had to pitch on stage. So as luck would have it, they, they called the name out of the hat and there was a bit of a laugh. We were called Funeral Booker then. And uh, I got called up on stage and I had to pitch the business to these dragons. And it went, surprise, it went surprisingly well. I think one of them had, uh, I think it was Christian Hernandez, actually, for was it White Star Capital? I think he'd, he'd, he'd sort of been through the bereavement process not that long ago. So he was, he was the first one who was very really supportive. Um, they hated the name Funeral Booker, uh, and they were right to hate the name. But, but it had worked for SEO at that stage. And the audience seemed to like it. Jess Butcher sent a great tweet. She said, I've just seen this guy on stage, Death Tech, he's killing it, which I thought was nice. And then after that, we got, um, yeah, we had lots of people came up and sort of wanted to talk to us about funding, which I thought was great. I was actually sat next to Izzy Fox from, it was called White Cloud then, they're Luminous Ventures now at dinner, Um, and she was lovely and um, and really interested in the industry, and we ended up um, closing around with them over the next three months very quickly. Really nice to work with. Yes, the Europas was a great, great event for us then. What happened next? We set up quite a lot of complicated um, campaigns, actually, so we... um, we had the problem that you, we wanted to be really particular with, with, with these branch locations. If you opened a funeral, you couldn't advertise nationally because it's too expensive. So we wanted to say, as soon as we opened a funeral director in Horsham, for example, a small town, we wanted to make sure that we could capture all the searches for around there, but, but not any wider. So we could be really targeted with, a, with the cost. So we got a list of about <sighs> over 50,000 place named locations around the UK, whether that's a town, a village, a postcode. Um, I got their latitude and longitude, and then every time we added a new location, we'd run a script that matched that location to those place locations. and said, is each one of these 50,000 locations within 10 kilometers of this branch? And so we'd pick up all those little place names because people, people don't write funeral in Bristol. They write funeral in this tiny little place, tiny little suburb of it, for example. And then we had about half a million Ad, AdWords campaigns running and we'd have a script that just turned them off or on. Um, depending on whether we, we had a branch location there or not. And that worked quite well. We, we were already at that stage finding it difficult to control the transaction. We were doing a lot of work on the flow to get people through, but we were finding that people would go in to the funeral director with a printed copy of the quote they got from us, for example. Uh, you know, that was, a, that, was a, that was a lesson. In the, in the end, that, which, which I guess we can come to, uh, that, uh, the funeral price comparison side of it, you have to be able to control the transaction in order to monetize it. And for a service like a funeral... You won't transact purely online. You know, you want to speak to someone at that stage. The way to monetize a price comparison website for the funeral industry is to charge the funeral directors to be on there. But the problem we had at that stage, the business was that we were desperate to get funeral directors on there. It was hard enough to get them to embrace any kind of technology without getting them to pay anything. And we had to build one side of the marketplace. So we just said, right, okay, we'll suck up the cost of that doesn't matter if we're not profitable. We just need to prove we can get these transactions through. So we, weren't, we, were only, we were saying to the funeral directors, you only have to pay if you actually get a funeral that converts. So there was a long, there was a long period of did the funeral convert or not? How do we check if it, if it actually converted at the end of it? It was a painful process, but we decided that we would just try and build scale and then go back and look at how we, how we were monetizing it. And then we were looking at SEO because it's obviously a, it's a much better way of doing it. It's more economical than PPC in the long run. If you could do it, so we started to play around with different, um, different ways of doing that. And I guess some of these just naturally fell into the fact that I like to do things which are funny to me. So for example, 2017 we did an April Fools um, where we released a home cremation system called the CremeMate, where you could um, get this home cremation system delivered to your door, um, operate it and we, we put it out there. And that, that got lots of hits. It got, it got on the top April falls list of the year from The Sun uh, and Adweek and a few others. And we had, we had, we had proper inquiries from America because they're insane and they believe that you could actually buy it. People going, where can you, where can you buy this? And it showed me from that um, just how much an impact you could have on your SEO through getting that kind of hit because you get a lot of top level domains. You know If you get The Sun referring to Adweek, those are high domain authority links coming to you. And so that was great. So I think that's that set in motion some of the other things that we went on to do it Beyond, realizing that virality is, if, if you can harness it, it's, it's a good way to go so to boost your SEO. The more the links you can get, the better. So while we're still doing you know, SEO and PPC, et cetera, we, um we entered the sort of first skirmish, I'd call it, with um, Dignity PLC. So Dignity are, I suppose, the largest funeral chain. They've got about 800 branches, and they were the worst, oldest, Dustiest, overpriced funeral director in the land, and an easy target, a big target, but we thought an easy target. As I said, you know, we wanted to have an enemy so that the independents would join. It was tough enough to get them on anyway, so we had to say, look, we're fighting against dignity for you, and to a lesser extent the co-op. So we came up with this plan, um, down the pub as usual, as all the best plans seem to be conceived. We used the fact that James, uh, uh who was who joined us, I mentioned him before, had been an analyst before. And we looked at Dignity's business and thought, yeah, we couldn't believe that it was trading so high you know, as a PRC. We thought, these guys had just spent years on the golf course just buying up funeral director branches, gutting them, putting their own stuff in there, and the productivity falls off. They get a little bit of extreme increase in revenue, but, um, but they have to end up buying more and more of these, these funeral branches just, just so that profits. They say, I'm bumping the prices up every six months. It's unsustainable. And we went around and we talked to, um, talked to a few of their analysts, and they weren't interested. So... James wrote a 13,000-word analysis of their business. I think we called it the Reaper, the Reaper calls for Dignity. We published it um, on our blog, and we said, we're shorting um, Dignity shares, and here's the reason why. Obviously, no one reads our blog, because we're a funeral price comparison website. We thought, well, what should we do next? So we, um, we had the, the, their quarterly earnings call was coming up. So we thought, okay, here's a chance. So we jumped on their quarterly earnings call, and it, it was all going normally, and then we said, hello, this is um, Mitch Favell from Arm Industries or something. Mitch was just Mitch was one of our customer service guys. And uh, they said, okay, hello, do you want to ask a question? I think they were excited that someone was going to ask a question on their, their boring old call. And we said, have you seen this report by this company called Funeral Booker, which was our name at the time? And they said, well, no, we haven't. And we said, oh, you should check it out. You know, talked about this report a bit. And then uh, they sort of shuffled us off the call. I think they realized that um, we weren't supposed to be on there. And then it, it, just, it just snowballed from there you know, we already had, we, we had this report published in the blog and we simply shorting their stock. And um, over the next few days, their stock started to collapse. I think they were a 1.4 billion listed company, I think, and it knocked 500, 600, 700 million off their value within the space of a month. Everyone just followed it and it, it just collapsed and it was amazing. You know, we ended up, uh, the Times covered it, Alphaville covered it and said, this little small company deserves kudos. And, uh, you know, and, and it, everyone noticed in the industry did it achieve much it, well I tell you what I didn't make any money out of it because we all put some company shorts on it ourselves and James who was managing the shorts because he was the only one who knew how to use the, the program or whatever to do the shorts got cold feet with it after four days and pulled our money out of it just before it tanked I was like oh no missed out on the trade of a century there but um that would have actually been unbelievable
1: I don't know enough about this this world um but would uh would you potentially have been um, pulled into something like unethical, or would it have been like more problematic down the line if you were the cause of the insight and shorted it in advance of knowing? I, I guess not really, right? Because what you've done is like investigative ultimately, and you're a private individual, so why not?
0: Yeah, no, I was, uh, no, because I mean that's what people do, short shares, right? My understanding is I'm not I'm used to the market. We not only shorted the shares, we then went and helpfully explained to everyone why we'd done it. You know, we we brought. Beautiful transparency to the market. It was a public service.
1: Amazing. So just to recount this for a moment, you have successfully managed a shorter, big
0: public company. You become a thorn in their side. What happens next? We close the funding round actually next. Um, we were still doing the PPC. It wasn't yet profitable, but it was it was getting it was looking like it might be. And at that stage, even it isn't, right? You don't suddenly give up as soon as PPC is not profitable. You go, right, well, we know we we'll think we'll find a way to make this business work. What we could definitely do with is another funding round. I was just starting to do the process of, re- of, of going out to VCs when I got inbound from Talis. Great VC company, doing really well now. They, were, you know, uh, they weren't as well-known back then. They were making some great investments back then, but they weren't well-known to the market. They've got more of, a, more of a presence now. I think they'd been looking at the care market uh, a lot and then decided that all the good investments there are gone or they didn't fancy them. And then they sort of moved from that, the natural way to, um, to death and thought, well, that's the next thing. And so they thought, who's doing anything in that space? And they noticed us. And came in and said, "Well no, are you looking for investment?" We were like, well, yeah, it was actually, um, that's quite handy, and you know we, we needed more money to spend PPC's expensive uh We were doing a lot of that and hoping we'd, we we'd, we'd get close to break even. Uh, we needed a team to do content you know you always need you always want to grow right, you know turn it down. We wanted to rebrand and we did rebrand from Funeral Brooker to beyond that, that was a really good rebrand actually. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so we, we, we they, they came on board, um, and we we continued doing what we were doing, just with a bit more, I guess, cash behind us, and expanding the SEO side of it. And we'd also, at that stage, decided that in order to, um, we wanted funeral directors, we wanted to give them more technology and more products to create more of a market network. So we are building things like online memorials. And we thought, well, if these funeral directors are in our network, and we've got them, then why can't we sell services through them? They should be offering more services. You know, For example, uh, in every 50% of deaths, you need to do probate or estate administration. So we thought, okay, why, do, why can't we advertise, why can't we offer that service and advertise it in funeral directors, try and use these to get additional, um, additional revenue for them and for us. So we had, um, at that point, we had teams, I think a team of eight people around the country, which we hired up to go and build relationships with these funeral directors and try and get them to do Um, that and funeral finance, which was something we brought in to try and finance the cost of the funeral. So we sort of had our nice branding going into these funeral directors Um, and to build relationships with people like hospitals, you know, because they refer families on, etc. So we sort of had these ambassadors, I guess, beyond ambassadors out. So we started that for a while. Never really worked any of that. It was a market that did not want to move, really. Funeral directors were quite comfortable. They're earning excess profits, even the independents, and they had no reason really to to move to do anything new. So we were, we were really pushing against a market that, that was entrenched. Even though they knew they didn't like the chains, they were also quite comfortable and quite often they were overpriced themselves and didn't want to invest in things like making the, making the stores look better. I mean, some of them are pretty grim. You'd even find new funeral directors opening and it would just be this grim old desk with a bit of raggedy carpet and you go, oh my God, some of them are awful. So yeah, it was a a hard market, we were were pushing against it. Nothing was working hugely well, and we kept on trying lots of different ways to monetize that market. We thought if we've got 1,000 odd funeral directors, how can we monetize that? Um, So we tried finance, we tried a state administration. It all worked a bit. We'd make a few hundred thousand pounds here, a few hundred thousand pounds there, but nothing looked like VC scalable levels. So we were just sort of iterating and iterating and chucking things out there just to see what worked, what would work in that market. Oh, and then we decided that we would, um, well, have another go at Dignity um, because we hadn't had enough yet. We wanted to get more coverage on the website and we wanted to put Dignity to put their prices on because you don't want your website looking sparse in certain areas. So Dignity wouldn't put their prices online, nor would Co-op, uh, the big change refused. So we thought we would do it for them. So uh, we got James's mum, lovely lady. And we got her over a period of, I think, four months to ring round every single Dignity funeral director in the country and say, you know, someone's passed away, could you please send me your, um, your pricing? So they'd mail it to her. And we, over Christmas, James and his mum typed it all in, We've got some lovely pictures of them sitting there with all these, all these leaflets and pricing. And we stuck them all on our website, all the costs broken down, so Dignity could do it, our published on our, um, on our website and leaked to the Times saying, hi, Dignity wouldn't publish their pricing online, so here, we've done it for them. You know, lovely picture of James and his mum doing it. Got us more press and got Dignity a load of flack because it did turn out, once we'd done it, that they were basically twice the price of everyone else in the industry. Um, Shockingly, they got annoyed about it because the the sheer amount of flack they were getting about it. Their share price had already taken that hit. And they they called us to a meeting at um, the Institute of Directors. What a dull place that is. And we, you know, we went there and they went, they just went through their different pricing and went, oh, they were questioning the prices of the odd urn and something like this. And you were like, you guys are missing the point entirely. And I think it was about that point that uh, the CMA decided to investigate the industry, the uh, Competition and Markets Authority. You no, know it's called, um, because I think there'd just been so much noise that we created around it that they realized that the evidence was staring there, you know, that this was a broken market. No one had actually seen these prices published, published before. So, yeah, that was a tipping point for the industry there um, when it was actually when we sort of made it transparent. Didn't help our revenue much, but um, we hoped it was going somewhere. Where did it go? Ultimately, as, is, as, is, uh, I suppose we'll, as we'll see with Beyond, Beyond changed the industry, funeral industry, but failed to make any money doing it. We made enough noise that the, the CMA came in and as it, as, as it has come in and has regulated it, have, have torn the chains apart and are in the process of making it better. Not completely better, but as a result, in, in terms of how we Beyond did overall, we never quite got it to, to profitability with that. We got, we got to break it, but it was, never, it was never going to get to those sort of VC level numbers. And at that stage, at that stage we still thought we could, and we, and we still kept going then. As part of that talus round, we decided to use some of the money to do above the line. It wasn't like I knew a lot above, about our love, line advertising, or anything about it at that time. But we thought top of funnel, we've got to do some top of funnel stuff. So my marketing director at the time told me. So I was like, okay, sounds like a good idea. But the problem is, only in that market, only fifteen hundred people die a day, you know. And you never know when someone has actually died. So how do you target that person? So my thinking was, I want to do a campaign that's memorable, that you will remember for so long that will either go viral because of the nature, or remember for so long that you will remember that brand when it, when it comes around. Thought so that's the only way you can, you can do it. So I decided to create some edgy adverts for the tube and run them on the underground. I've been reading about all other people's um, success in doing those tube panel adverts, Nutmeg and similar, and I thought, oh, this seems a good idea. So I came up with the idea um, for some of these adverts, and I thought narcissistically that I would come up with the ideas myself because this would, because <laughs> I was totally unqualified to do so. And I came up with these ideas for these adverts and I thought that, that hopefully would be memorable. And um, I took them to the brand agency because that was who I thought might do them. And they said, no, it's a terrible idea. You, you will kill your brand. And I said, well, we, we don't have a brand. We're a funeral price comparison website. Any, any noise would be good. But they said, look, thanks, but no, thanks. We're not going to work on them. So um, they turned down our business at that stage. And I'd already bought myself some... Um, some space on the on the tube underground, I think 80 grands worth of um, of space. So I had to rush around and found an agency willing to do them. And I went to meet with that agency, they were called Akimasabi. And I said to the uh, I took them through these adverts and they went, Oh so you've already come up with the adverts, you don't want us to sort of have these ideas. And I was like, No, I just I just need someone to make these adverts. And they were like, Okay, I think they did me a favor because they um, they knew my girlfriend at the time, they'd done some work from her for Cisco, so they, they went, okay. So we, we went to make these adverts, and I think, looking back at it, it's crazy. You know I ignored anyone who's ever worked in that industry's advice against it, and just decided to come up with their own adverts. So we did these adverts, which were like you can look them off band ads. So they had, You know they had one with people on the beach with it looks like surfboards, which are actually coffin lids. Um, great fun to go and film. By the way, I had a cracking time doing that. went up, did a little tour of the north of England, film one in a car park in Huddersfield as a sort of wheeler, key, wheeler dealer, car dealer one came back, I was really pleased with these adverts, and I thought, this is brilliant, you know, these are... Love my own adverts, loving myself there, and then submitted them to the, to the Tube, and waited and thought, oh, you know, four, four days to go, three days to go, these are going to be showing in the underground. And then the, the people who run the advertising for the Tube came back and said, it sort of 24 hours to go, I'm sorry, we're not going to let you run these ads. I said, well, what do you mean you're not going to run these ads? Hadn't even crossed my mind there would be some kind of test you've got to get through for these adverts. And they went, well, we think they're, they're inappropriate. We think they might cause offence. And I said, well, how, how would they cause offence? And they said, is, you know, where's the rule? Who decides this? And it's like basically one guy in a darkened room somewhere. I called him up and said to him, well, you know, what about all these gambling adverts you get on the tube? This is just about death. Why would it, why would it be so offensive to someone? But um, our computer said no. Or certainly he did. And, um, and they wouldn't run them. And they said, I said, well, what about this ad space? And they went, we've, well, you know, you've got to submit us new adverts. And I went, oh, I've got 24 hours. I can't do any new adverts. And we were at a, um, a conference and I had to sit there with um, with a laptop and we got PowerPoint out and got our little mascot and um, stuck him in some PowerPoint ads and literally wrote some ads within half an hour, of their cremation price, this much, et cetera, and sent them in. And those ads ran. And I was like, oh, I was so embarrassed about those ads. But they, but they went through. And, um, and I thought, well, what about this money I've spent? I think it cost me about 40,000 um, pounds to do these other ads. And I thought, how am I gonna explain this to, um, to my board? Because it doesn't look good when you, when you look it back. So Ian, you've come up with your own adverts, you've decided to ignore anyone's advice, you've used our money to get them done, and they haven't been allowed. I mean, that's it's kind of sackable, isn't it? So um, I thought, oh God, so I knocked up a press release that said, you know, here are these ads banned by The Tube and put it out, and sat there, and nothing came back, nothing at all. And I sat there sort of drumming my fingers all day, going, I'm going to have to, you know, I can't, I can't hide this. This has happened, I'm going to have to, It's a big spend item, what am I going to do? And then about four o'clock, I got this, um, got this call through, and someone said, um, oh, hi, I'm a researcher at the Victoria Derbyshire Show. I, I didn't know what the Victoria Derbyshire Show was. And they said, would you mind coming on tomorrow to talk about these ads? And I said, yeah, sure, they were, we'd be in the BBC centre or whatever it is at six o'clock and I thought, okay, great, looked it up, Victoria Derbyshire show, I thought, oh, okay, yeah, this is good, it turned up there in my little shirt, got all dressed up for it. Um, in the morning I went and did that and then as soon as I got there, I was in their green room and I could see what the t- what was going on at the, the show was showing at the moment and it had this thing back going, bam, shock, funeral ads or whatever like that. I was like, oh God, okay, here it comes. Went on um, and did that and, and they were actually very supportive. Uh, the lady who was presenting, she was take, standing in for Victoria Derbyshire. I could feel that she was supportive. They had a couple of other people on there to say that I was a terrible person. Yeah, and then suddenly it went mental. I think it was probably the best day I've ever had at work because I went back to the office. You feel like a bit of a hero going back to the office because, you know, you're, just, you're all buzzed up from it. And then um, when I got there, everyone was like, oh, you know, well done. And then suddenly it started going mental, everyone started calling. We had, you know, The Sun, The Daily Mail, the whatever, we had Sky, whatever, all calling, just asking for a, you know, another quote, another angle of the story. Could I do this? Could I have a quote on that? And by the evening, it was like New York Times, and then it was Ink, and I was like, wow, this is crazy. And just sitting there, and each one, I was just sitting there thinking, Nice. That's a high-value link. High-value link because I was so focused on um, on the SEO impact, which actually it doubled our SEO traffic, uh, uh, and it never dropped after that. It was brilliant, and I was, and there was also a massive feeling of relief, as and I'm not in trouble for this now. And we ended up getting, a, we ended up submitting them, getting a drum drum award for it, for out of door advertising, um, which is good. And and interestingly, even the um, even the the Photoshop adverts for the tube ended up going viral. Um, some comedian posted them saying, only in London, this reminded me that I can't even afford to die here. And I, I actually got sent it three days ago. It's popped up, resurfaced on No Context Brits last week. Um, so even that one's around today. So that was, yeah, that, that was, a, that was a fun period of, of time. Then. Ian decided
1: to pivot away from price comparison towards wills,
0: estate planning, and
1: cremations, opening a branch that offered all of these services in person. But the timing couldn't have been worse. They opened the branch at the beginning of 2020, and it got off to a flying start before COVID battered the concept, because everything had to go online. The branch was forced to close, and they pivoted to doing direct cremations instead. But this wasn't without its difficulties either. COVID restrictions hit staff, and Ian personally handled the dead when needed.
0: Uh, I remember there was one, I was in in there, and um, the poor guy died, he was was about, um, I had to help dress him in, in, in the back room he was about 20 stone but so you know you got they've got this manoeuvre where you can, where you sort of have to put their arms up and dress them and the guy like that and um, there was one point where he lifted his arms up um, a poor guy one of, them, one of his arms just fell down heavily and punched me in the nuts and I was like oh my god <laughs> I've gone from being a tech entrepreneur to being Hitting the nuts by, by a corpse. This is, um, I need a change of industry. And so, uh, I mean, during that time, we raised around with the future funds just because, you know, it's your company. You don't want it to, you don't want it to die. You, you know, you, you steal yourself. You do the negotiation. You do, you do the raise. You convince yourself and everyone else around you that there's a future for it. But my motivation was, um, was fairly broken at that stage. We were sort of treading water to survive at that stage. Um, and so I thought, I will look for a part-time role. Save the company some money. Um, look for a trade exit. Let's just see if st- we've built loads of strategic assets that someone could use. Let's look for an exit for the business within the, within the industry. And at the same time, do, do something else. Probably looking for another smooth transition, I guess. And um, through the Founders Network, uh, this football CEO job came up. And I love, I love football. My kids love football. And I thought, that sounds interesting. So um, I started speaking to them. They were raising around. And so I helped them raise it for six months as part of that raise, um, raised the round. I was joining upon completion of the round. And then just before I started that job, so I'd helped them raise the round, it was all closing and just starting, this company called Phoenix popped up. So this, they, they were the, these companies, they're the ones who'd ousted the Dignity management. They'd been buying up Dignity shares. They popped up and they said, hey, Ian, I said, hey, you know, we'd like to talk about Buy and Beyond. And I thought, well, oh, okay, this is interesting. I said, uh, they said Dignity's under new management. Now we're all about transparency and light. Uh, we'd like to buy beyond. We'd like to invest 5 million in it and leave you with 20% of the company. You still run it. Thought, hmm, sounds all right. Um, but I said, uh, you know, the guy was like, you know, I, I like to be open, transparent, all the cards on the table. And I said, well, are you good, so do I. And I said, being like that, you know, I'm I've, I've just about to start this new job as um, CEO of a sports tech company. So how about, you know, I could do, part time for a while do some kind of earn out do three days a week at the new sports job do two days a week at Dignity hire someone to replace me do an earn out and it seemed to suit him I thought well that, this, this could work quite well exit it work nicely with that um, they sent a term sheet over we got to that stage we had term sheet it was, it was difficult my investors my investors wanted more money than they were offering and they played a bit hardball at this stage I was thinking oh please don't you know please just sell it to them let's not, let's not be nickel and diming this thing and that made the negotiations drag a bit because they came back with what I thought was a reasonable offer. It's a few million. I can't remember how much. And I was like, yeah, it seems good. Everyone can get out of this all right. Um, can you honestly not remember how much when you have an offer on the table to buy a company in the millions? Yeah, it was. Through, I think it was 3.5 mil. It wasn't, yeah. wasn't, no, wasn't going to make everyone... Mean,
1: but it's still meaningful in the grand scheme of things, right? Like ultimately because... At this point, you've been hit in the nuts by a corpse and decided it's time to move on. 3.5 million at that point isn't in like well, isn't zero, frankly,
0: which is you know one of the other options you're looking at. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it wouldn't have made everyone whole, but it would have gone away towards doing it. We hadn't raised that much money. We probably raised about four or something like that. Um, anyway, so that slowed that down, and I could feel them wobbling a bit, didn't you? Anyhow, I started the sports tech CEO role, and that turned out to be not what I thought it was. I like, I like the company I still like Football Tech but um, the, the guy who was running it um, I, I got on with him really well but he, was, um, he, he didn't want a CEO he wanted someone to front the fundraising and he still wanted to run the business day to day that didn't work it was quite micromanaging And I, I, so I said to him after, after about three weeks I was like look I really enjoy it I get with you guys but I can't it's not, it's not going to work for me so I'm going to sort of duck out at this stage and I thought to myself let's go I've got this other deal on the table let's just go and uh, take that one close it out and work out what to do next and so I went back to Dignity and went, hey guys, good news, I'm back. Let's do this. All excited. Um, and meanwhile, they got cold feet. The fact the negotiations had dragged and the fact I hadn't immediately committed full-time and I think they were worried about this other sports tech job just meant it hadn't given them the right signals and they pulled the term sheet. Uh, so, okay, so now I had no sports job and no deal for Dignity. And because I hadn't raised money for Beyond, because I'd been doing this for six months, it, it was out of cash. I had no thought of raising another round I was uh, you know, not in it and, um, and the numbers weren't good enough so for the next four months I sort of shot beyond around the market and said does anyone fancy this did my best to, to sell it but didn't get enough offers good enough for my board because they wanted more for it the problem with not accepting those offers is that we had no money and we couldn't pay the team so I was desperate to just put us into administration because then everyone gets the protection they get cheapied, everyone can, it can get bought out everyone gets new salaries but I, I, I wasn't able to put it into administration because I needed board permission to do so so that went on for about eight weeks. Meanwhile, everyone didn't get paid. So it's quite difficult to tell everyone you're not getting paid. And then you've got the discussion on oh, are you going to still be working? And you've got the carrot of if someone buys it, then of course they'll want to be working because you, know, you want a job with a new company, but then you know, really, if you, how long do you go on working with no one paying you? As soon as, as soon as you start to get on towards a quarter of the year, three months, then you know, I was amazed that some people stayed with us. We've got good people because they stayed. Um, I'm not sure everyone worked super hard but I don't really blame them to be honest so yeah went on for about 8 or 9 weeks um, and then um, eventually I managed to get the board to sign the papers this was a few months ago it went to an auction and guess who won the auction <laughs> Dignity PLC so in the end um, Dignity won they, they own Beyond I don't own any of it but at least at least because of um, because of Chupi, the staff the staff all got paid and that's that's where we are today Talk to me a little bit about how you felt when you saw dignity of all people having bought it? Actually, the first feeling was relief. The, the, the dignity that bought it isn't the dignity that used to run Dignity. You know, they've ported in new management. They're trying to change it about. Some of the people I met, there were really nice and, and capable. And it was relief that the staff would get paid and relief most of all that the, um, something I'd put six years of effort into wasn't going to die. The thought of it dying and then having to go through all, the, all that process... I would rather if anyone could would have had it and it, just keep it alive you know i'd have given it to them for nothing um obviously sitting here resisting making a zillion death jokes <laughs> <but continue. laughs> yeah so it, it was it was relief actually. stubborn aren't you for someone running a death business <laughs> yeah it was it was relief i was i was annoyed that dignity pulled the the one person at dignity who pulled the deal um because it was his choice at the end to pull the deal and they got it for nothing um and they still haven't worked out what to do with it, actually. I was annoyed personally with him for having done that because it's, you know, pulling the term sheet and then that forced the collapse of it and then picking it up for pennies on the pound is uh, that. But I was no, relieved that it continues. When, you, when you've built something, I think, you know, even if you don't get anything out of it, you want to see it live on. And, you know, is it really continuing in the spirit of things or are they sort of disentangling it anyway and just taking it off the market? Or what is the reality? The reality is they haven't figured it out yet. They're still working out what to do with it. They didn't intend, they'd forgotten about it for a couple of months you know. and then they, it came up, they bought it, uh, they didn't think they'd win the auction. They won the auction, they've got it and they haven't quite worked out what to do with it. They're still trying to figure that out. They've got, they're so busy trying to re-change dignity at the top. They've got some internal transformation coming on that they know they've got this asset but they don't have a plan for what to do with it yet. They asked me the other day, what's your plan for it? And I said, well, I, I, gave, I gave you the plan four months ago or five, six months ago and then you pulled the term sheet so clearly didn't like that plan very much did you yeah i don't know we'll have to see what they do with it i think they're, they're intending to run it as, as, a, as an independent venture and what are you doing i don't know yet um how, how long ago was this sorry oh th- three months two months it's okay, so like
1: february 2022 so have you had time to digest what's
0: happened really like what have you been doing since this moment it's weird because it's been it's been chaotic and on the verge of you know up and down since the start of 2020. Really, you know, raising the, that was almost the most stressful bit trying to raise that future fund note during um, during COVID. I've had a couple of months of not doing much at the moment. I am starting to reflect on it. This has been, uh, thinking about this has been great, this interview, because it's given me a chance to think back through it. I'd never really thought back through any part of it, so it's been quite cathartic thinking back on it. Well, you know, I like to think we're providing a public service too, Ian. Yeah, know. I'm very grateful for you. Private service. Yeah, it's made me realise, you know, think back some of the good things rather than just, you know, painful corpse experiences. It's also made me realise that you could, you could do lots of right things but still end up with no, no result at the end of it. And it is quite a lot of period of my life of working on a startup salary to have no result at the end of it. That bit is, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't, you know, I would prefer to have left with some cash at the end of it. I would definitely prefer that and then to have the option to think about what I do next in a more relaxed manner. I'm happy it exists, but sad that it didn't succeed financially. There's the two sides of it, aren't they? Did it succeed as a. As a business as a service that's useful for people, yes, it did it's still a couple of million people use that. Did it succeed from a financial perspective from either myself or the investors no it didn't so it 's a failure in that respect and um, that's that's also quite difficult, I guess because until then through my career, there haven 't been many failures nothing that I can look it 's been quite an upward upward journey, so yeah, re- reflecting on that it's, um, and it 's weird when someone says, "I went to your, your founder's event the other day, and someone says, "So what you know what, what startup do you run and you 're like." Phew, I don't really want to go through this about, you know, how I have got a start. So I had run it and had done that, but it hasn't quite worked out, but it's still alive. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's messy. Thank you so
1: much, Ian. It's been a massive pleasure chatting to you, hearing the story of Beyond. And I think everyone is rooting for you for
0: whatever's next. Cheers, and I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Here at
1: Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this series. We're now going on a two-week break for the full-length show, but we'll still be publishing Bite Size in the meantime, our new series of 10-minute episodes looking at entrepreneurs' biggest failures. There are some great stories in there, so check it out and let us know what you think. See you shortly. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media, with Will Stolerman, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.